Passe, Minnesota. Welcome back to another episode of Parlay. My name is Dominique Pietrusson, and I'm your host for the evening. But before we continue, I want to introduce a new special guest that's going to be my host for the season. Dom, hi. I'm so excited to be here. I'm Jen Westmoreland. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am chair of the Hopkins School Board. I grew up in the Hopkins Schools community. That's where Dom and I got to know each other. I moved back into this community about um, 17 years ago, and um, Dom and I connected mm, about seven years ago. Yeah, Yeah, and started working on various projects in the community, always focused on centering the voices and perspectives of youth in the community and really working um, from an education perspective to to bring people together and have interesting conversations and experiences. So when he told me about this podcast, I just jumped at the chance, not least of which is because I am a French teacher. Um, my research background is in Francophone studies, meaning wherever French is spoken in the world. And so when Dom said it was going to be called Parlay, I was like, count me in. Yeah, you should have seen our eyes. Yes. Love the Haitian influence. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's tell some stories in the Haitian storytelling tradition, right? Well, let's just say J-Dub, this is what I call her. I call her J-Dub, Gentleman's Mormon. Um, she has been a special uh, mentor to me. She doesn't know it, but she has. She's always been supporting everything that I've been doing in the community for several years now. And um, she's a very authentic person and it's hard to run by. And also there's another authentic person that's in the crowd that's gonna be sitting down with us today to chat a little bit. And after this break, from hearing from some of our community supporters, we get to sit down with one of the most eclectic reporters I've ever met in the state of Minnesota. We're going to catch up with Mr. Mike Max from WCCO. Welcome back to Parlay. Well, as Dom said, we are really honored to be joined today by Mike Max. I admittedly do not know much about sports. So when Dom started telling me about Mike and what an interesting person he said, I'm like, well, he'll definitely be interesting to me because I don't know much about sports. So if he talks about sports, that'll be great. And Dom said, no, just just you wait. He has so much more to talk about. So Mike, so exciting to sit down with you today and just just really happy to to share some time and space and learn from you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Suck passe, Mike. Mapulay. Yeah, Mike hit it off right. He, he didn't even need a second take on that. Yeah. Mike, before we um, start everything, I want to take us back in time. Take you to a space where you first cracked a smile or possibly even drew a tear and opened your eyes to the world. Where were you born, Mike? I was born in Glencoe, Minnesota, right down the road. Uh, my family lived in Broughton. And my dad was a school teacher there. My mom was a school nurse. And uh, that was his first job out of college. And they didn't have a hospital in Broughton, Minnesota. So I was born in Glencoe, Minnesota, which is about, oh, 50 miles west of here, right off of Highway 212. Really not that far from here. But a lot of people, they, once you know, once they get outside the cities, they're not familiar with. Uh, so I was born there, but we lived in Broughton. And then uh, uh, I don't even remember Broughton. We moved to Gaylord, Minnesota. 
Uh, my dad took a, a teaching and coaching job there when I was uh, uh, two or three years old, uh, and and lived there for the you know the rest of my formative years before I went off to college. Before you went off to college, well, let's go into high school a little bit. So, um, what were some of your special extracurricular activities at high school? I play. I was captain of the football, basketball, and baseball teams in the small town. But you say captain? Were, yep, and and okay, so were both of my brothers. Wow! And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful place to grow up. Uh, 57 kids in my graduating class. Um, many of them, I mean, I, I've got a group that every year we go to Colorado together, uh, high school friends. Um, the uh, my, my parents were very active in the community. My mom was a school nurse there as well. My dad taught for a while, and then he got into financial planning. Uh, so I never, you know, played sports for him or anything like that. But, but the, the, they were very active in the community. They were on the school board. They were on the church board. They were on all those kinds of things. And um, uh, the, the the teachers and the and the faculty were just you know they, they cared so much about you you know and, and when you when you talk about um, growing up in a place or going to school in, in, in any place you know we can talk about the academics and the ACT tests and all that you know, I'm much more concerned with do the teachers care about you right, and do people right. care about you and, and I felt like I grew up in a place where people cared about you and mm. it was it was really a, a terrific place. To grow up. Well, it sounds like it, Mike. So, Mike, after high school, where did your path take you to? I went to Hamlin University uh, in in St. Paul, Minnesota. My mom was a, a Hamlin grad, and I went. I got recruited to play some basketball and baseball there. I played basketball for one year, and I played baseball for four years. Uh, and it was there that I got introduced, really, um, to diversity. Uh, you know, I grew up in a town where it was uh, all white, basically. Um, it's changed since with, with, with Michael's Foods and some of the things going in there. Uh, we, have, we have workers that are seasonal, et cetera, in, in Gaylord. But um, I can remember um, being on that dorm floor, Drew Hall, and uh, as a freshman and, and meeting the different people, you know, that were that sure, mm -hmm. you know, and going, wow, this is different than where I grew up. Um, not just in not just in the color of their skin, but just in backgrounds and everything else, you know. And, and uh, you know, I, I was focused on sports in high school. And a lot of people weren't. And it was really a healthy place for me to uh, spread my wings because I was introduced to um, an urban setting, um, kids from different backgrounds, professors, again, that cared about you, that really did care about you. They cared about, you know, that, that you, you got something out of their class. Um, and uh, it was... Uh, it was up and down my career at Hamlin, uh, but um, a lot of good came out of it, and a lot of people, and a lot, a lot of introductions to life, so to speak. Wow, introductions to life. So let me ask you, how did you get into your field, your line of work? Uh, so I was um, I was majoring in business and psychology, a double major. And I really didn't know what I was going to do with it. I knew I really liked psychology classes, and I thought that business was more practical, you know, because I didn't have a, a focus or a passion. So I didn't know. I, I could kind of see myself selling insurance or something like that. I didn't know. I mean, I say business, but I didn't even know what that meant. Right. And I took a class at St. Thomas. We have a consortium at Hamlin, so you could take classes if they weren't offered at your school at, at uh, either Augsburg, St. Thomas, uh, St. Kate's. Uh, or McAllister if, if they had an opening in that class. So I took a video production class, and, and a professor, her name was Mathy Cantor, uh, saw that I had a passion for it. And she said, you should try to get an internship in this field because you seem to enjoy it. And and I didn't even know internships existed, you know. Hmm. And so I banged on every door in the uh, 
Twin Cities, every TV station that I could find. And the only one that let me in was uh, WCCO TV Channel 4. And that was coming up on 37 years ago. Uh, I was a junior in college as an intern. Uh, so I started my internship there. And in one way, shape, or form, uh, because I worked for WCCO Radio, WCCO TV, Midwest Sports Channel, which was the, you know, before it was BSN. That was a CBS product in that building. Uh, I've been affiliated with WCCO or the call letters or or CBS uh, for really 37 years. And and it all came. uh, I'm a big believer in this, you know, that you make yourself available in life because you don't know what it is that you can do or what's out there. And and this professor, Mathy Kander, she she pointed me in a direction that changed my life forever. She was one of your mentors? Yeah, she was. But, she, you know, it wasn't just, again, I'll, I'll get back to what I said. Mm-hmm. She cared. Okay. Yeah, she cared. She she. I, I don't remember exactly what we learned in her class. I remember it was an introduction <laughs> to video, and you know. Uh, but but you, I felt like she cared about me. And um, and she wanted to see you succeed. And and those people are, you know, once once I got in that building, because in, in, lots of people get internships at, at television stations in different places. Once I got in there, I can just remember the first probably three days saying, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. You felt like it was. Whatever it was, you know, I, I think it was the action, you know, I, I, the adrenaline that went with it. I think I do better on deadlines because I procrastinate if I don't, you know, <laughs> and, and you got deadlines every day. I, I like the lights, the action, the, you know, people dressed in nice clothes. All of it kind of came together under one roof. And so I changed my major and we didn't have a major for, um, we didn't have anything that represented what I was doing. So I met with um, Dr. Pat Palmerton was my advisor at, at Hamlin University. And I said, this is a conundrum because I know what I want to do, but we really don't have a major that lines up. And so her and I and an advisory board created my own major. They allowed me the freedom to create my own major. I, I might be, I don't know, the only telecommunications major to come out of Hamlin. Yeah. Uh, but But they allowed me the independence to do that. And her and I together wrote the program uh, subject to approval. And so I graduated with a degree in telecommunications that, that we devised between us. I've heard you mention care multiple times now, and it seems to be such an important value for you. And I'm wondering how that has influenced or appeared in your own career in journalism. Yeah, care and trust, man. If, uh, you know, it, it's easy to do things and we all do things that are transactional. Uh, you have to, to get through the day, right? You, you don't have time to, you know, um, but if I've just found that in general in my life, if I have, and I've worked for a lot of different people, if I believe that they cared about me, that trumped everything else. That trumped, uh, how astute I thought they were, uh, at their jobs, their professions, how, you know, how intelligent they were pertinent to their, if they cared, then I'm going to go through a wall for you. And, and, uh, if you don't, then we're going to have problems. But care, I put at the top of the list. If you really want, if I believe that you want the best for me, that's number one, two, and three on my list. And and the other stuff is semantics that we can work through. But if I believe that, if I believe that, then you can be tough on me and I'll listen because I know you want the best for me. You can get mad at me and I'll listen because I know you want what's best for me. But if I think you're manipulating me or you're playing games with me or there's a political agenda to whatever it is, then I then I tend to tune out real quick. I'm gonna piggyback off of what you just said with care. So you know, the first time I met you, mm-hmm. you probably don't even remember. It was at church. 
Was it? Yes. It was a church. I remember being there with our youngest son, um, and he was nervous to go into Sunday school. Okay. And you were there with your son. Yep. Same age. Yep. For, yep. Same age. First time I met you. And usually, I'm going to be blunt, usually with somebody with your stature and whatnot, and status, don't really show care as much from the individuals I run into. And I watched you walk with our son into it because you noticed he was nervous. You went and sat down with him at the table with your son and him until he was comfortable. I don't remember that. You don't remember it, but that was the moment that I stopped and went, wow, he's not what I thought he was (laughs) going to be. And that's when you caught me. And I was like, wow. This, this this guy is more than what everybody else sees. Yeah, I think it's, um, but I, I do think it's, it, 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 those of us who work in the public, I think get judged unfairly sometimes too, because you know sometimes your mind just be, might be in a different place, right? Mm-hmm. And you're just you, you're putting your kid in Sunday school, but you're, you you don't realize this person has this other thing coming up, you know. So, so I don't think that people. I, I was sitting with, um, I'll give you a good example of somebody that I think cares a lot, uh, Kirk Cousins. Vikings quarterback. So I sit and talk with him uh, just yesterday for a long time. And uh, he doesn't have time necessary to show that always in the public, but he cares. He cares about his life. He cares about the people around him. He cares about respect, all those things. Uh, he cares about justice. He cares about all those things. And and I thought, you know, it's it's too bad sometimes that you can't really take the time to show that side uh, who you are. But you really don't have as many opportunities to do that as you would like, you know. Right. Right. Well, Jen, I think we're going to dig in a little bit with Mike. On. Let's dig in. Uh, so, Mike, first of all, as a as a friend, it was a moment during 2020 that you actually made me really nervous where I paused and, and was thinking about your safety. Let me just say your safety was on my mind a lot during 2020. Um, I noticed that you got, you got, first of all, how on earth did you talk to your director to have you be downtown Minneapolis doing the social unrest? Doing the social unrest. You know, I, I've told this story, it seems like weekly, you know, because people ask, I'll ask that same question. How did anybody end up there? How did the yeah. sports guy end up how there? How did the right? sports guy? Here's what happened. We were in COVID. So there were no sports going on, no games going on, right? So our schedule was light. We were just producing feature stories to try to fill the sports cast. Uh, so it wasn't the same demands because the Twins weren't playing. Nobody was playing, right? So I didn't have the same responsibility. So uh, I come back from a vacation, and I hear about this death of George Floyd. And uh, as I get back to uh, – and, and we're positioned in downtown Minneapolis, you know, WCCO TV, so we see a lot of what's going on. Um, and on the Thursday night – I, we got done with the sports. I went home. There's kind of a nervousness, you know, uh, about the city right now, but we don't know what's going to happen. I get home and I turn on the TV and I go, my God, we're still on the air. And, and, and it's this live shot. They're burning down the third precinct. And I'm watching this. Uh, and I didn't realize that this had happened and manifested after I left the building. Right. So I'm watching this and it's, it's just this shot from afar. And the television anchors are talking as best they can about what's going on. But nobody really knows what's going on because you just see this building burning down and and the cameras. There. There's no reporter out there. There's nobody out there to say, here's what's going on. Or, you know, can we talk to somebody that's telling us what's going on? 
So I watched this and I, I went in the next day and I was curious. And I went into my news director, who's my direct report, and, and she too happens to be a Hamlin grad. Uh, but uh, I said to her, I said, I, I, I understand this is probably over, right? We, this, this is, we probably saw the apex of the week last night when the third precinct burned down. But I said, if something like that happens again, I just want you to know I will go wherever it is that we need to go. I'll go. If you want me to go, I'll go. If something similar to this happens. And she said, I will make a note of that. Um, and we're all kind of on edge because we don't know if something's going to happen again. But I didn't really think anything else would happen. There, there was a march that day. Several athletes participated correct, in correct. you know. Yes. And, and so I was with them and I covered that as an event uh, with, with the athletic connection to it. Was it P.J. Hill and P.J. Hill, White, yep. They were just be White. beginning what became a yeah. big part of the movement. Um, and, the, and then that night at um, 9.45... Um, I'm sitting in the sports desk and she, she would normally would be gone by six, but because everything was going on, she was just paying attention, you know, running the newsroom. She came over, she said, do you really want to go? Because they just shut down the freeway over by us bank stadium and we need to get a crew out there. She said, you don't have to go, but I'm, I'm asking you cause you told me, you, you know, if you wanted to, that you wanted to go. I said, I'm in. Well, I know you were in. I, I was in. So I got a photographer. We went out there. And, um, and down on 35W, they shut the freeway down. Um, and a, a furniture truck came through. They stopped it. They jumped on it, threw all the furniture off the back and started it on fire, the, the, the furniture. And he was just happy to get going. And you're watching this. And I'm on the embankment, uh, doing a live report. And all at once, um, everybody leaves 35W and they come running up the embankment. And I said, what's going on? And they said, we're going to go take down the 5th Precinct tonight on Lake Street. And so now we're in. we got to get over to Lake Street because it's going to, you know, we got to see what happens next because we're in, right? We're, and so we we picked up another person, uh, mainly for safety because we didn't know what we were going to see. And, and we went on our way to Lake Street. And uh, I'll never forget coming up uh, the back roads. Luckily, we did not have a marked car. Uh, and they'd burning down Wells Fargo was on fire and, uh, so was White Castle and a couple other places. And, and there are people beating on the ATM machine to get the cash. Mm. And, and we, we drive by and, and you're seeing this. And I think what really takes you is you're going, this is surreal. This is, this is the city I live in, you know? And, and, and you, you just can't believe what's happening in front of your eyes. And, and we went out, we went around the fifth precinct. Still haven't seen any law enforcement officials. And all of a sudden I look behind me and here comes marching in sync. Uh, it was, it was the police department, the Hennepin County Sheriff's Department, the uh, National Guard, everybody, law, they, they had a plan that we didn't know about or were privy to. And so you got this smoke billowing everywhere. You got people on the street. Uh, you got, um, I'd call it controlled chaos. Um, and, and here comes the law enforcement. And, and you don't know at that moment what's going to happen when one meets the other, right? right? Right. Because they haven't met yet. And um, and you can see up on the roof, you can see guys with, in, in their silhouettes of guys with, uh, I'll never forget that, with, uh, you know, they got rifles. They're sitting up on the roof, right? Law enforcement. And all of a sudden, this this smoke comes over towards us. I remember I was doing a live report. And it wasn't smoke, it was tear gas. This is where your safety was becoming a problem. <laughs> this is where you know? I just, just took me to my knees, you know? I couldn't breathe. I couldn't, you couldn't, the first time I'd ever been tear gassed. Um, and it works, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet it works. And, and, and now you're into this thing. 
so deep and and you are so fascinated as a journalist because you're seeing everything pour out in front of you, all these emotions, the suppression that people have felt that now have a voice and they've come together. You have another group of people that are simply there just because they're curious or there's nothing else to do and they just want to be part of something. They don't even know what it is they're there for. You've got the law enforcement officials and you're thinking to yourself, how long before we see the first altercation, right? Because it was, it was about to come. Because it's, and, the, and the tension is so high. And it was such an eye-opening experience to me. It was as if, um, it, it was as if I was put there to be educated. That's what I felt like, that this is the real world that you don't see as much. You think you understand it. Now you're seeing it up close. And and so we got back at like four in the morning. It was just it, w- it was crazy. And your adrenaline is so. And, and, and the next day we thought, OK, I, I don't know if you guys remember. this. It was beautiful weather, first of all. The next day there was an eight o'clock curfew. And so it, it, it was like, whoa. You, what's going to happen at eight o'clock? And you can feel the tension there. And there's rumors everywhere, right? The rumors are that people are coming from different states, and 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 they they don't care. They're here to to do destruction, and and so you're on the lookout for that. And I went over to North Minneapolis. I brought my daughter over there because I wanted to see it. And we went to this place. It's a workout facility, and this uh, the, the guy that owns it and runs it, uh, African American man who I've known a long time, and and he's got this workout facility where they train kids. And uh, he said, I've got six guys coming. We're all going to stay overnight with shotguns because we don't know what's going to happen tonight. And want to protect their space. And they're going to protect their space. All of a sudden you go, here's another dimension, right? And that dimension is the American dream. There are small business owners now that are scared to death that they're going to lose their business. And I get in touch with some of these. There's a liquor store two blocks from this, and, and they park six cars up against it so that if you if you wanted to come in and loot it, you'd have to go over the cars. They had four guys on the roof and four more guys with guns in the liquor store. So if anybody came through, because they, they, they believed that, that there weren't enough, uh, there was not enough police protection. And they formed this kind of unofficial uh, alignment with the other business owners from North Minneapolis and South Minneapolis in particular said, we're going to defend it at all costs. And they came up with a plan. They, they, they literally would have kids outside playing in front to try to defuse things. And then at 8 o'clock, all the kids went inside or went home or wherever. And they stayed in their businesses armed with different people. I thought for sure we were going to see a bloodbath at some point in time. The wrong people were going to go to the wrong place at the wrong time. And it never happened. It never happened once. And the, 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 the protesters... Were, were very, um, I don't want to say they were highly organized, but they knew where they wanted to go and they really weren't looking to do that, but nobody knew that at the time. And so I, I've got this information, this intel that these guys are sitting there and, and they've got shotguns and they've got their friends and they've got, you know, th- th- these are first generation immigrants that came over and this small business that you drive by on Lake Street, you realize, for me at least for the first time in my life, this is their dream and they're not letting go of it. This is where they're going to finance their kids' education. This is where they're going to make a better life, not just for them, but for the next kin. And you realize how important that is to the people that lived in North and South Minneapolis. And they would protect it at all costs because it meant that much to them. 
And I'm getting this real-time education on all of the above. All these places that I drive by and I think twice about now, every time I drive by, I say, there's somebody there that cares a lot about that place, and that place might be everything that they've gotten invested in. And then that Saturday night, it all came together. The, um, the, the protesters sat down on Lake Street, and they wouldn't move, and then the, 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 uh, the flash bombs and the, and the whatnot, and, and everything. <laughs> I, I can't, I mean, I could, uh, uh, I'll edit it so that we don't, you know, I could go on all day, but every, every night, and then that night we went over to, a, there's a Native American school over there, and we're driving down, and they've got the road blocked, people. And so I get out of the car and introduce myself, and I'm talking to them about their school. I, I wish I could remember the name. I don't know uh, if it comes top of mind to either, but but it's in, in, in South Minneapolis, and I should know it, and I don't. But anyway, they're standing there, and they won't let anybody through because they're not going to let anybody into a place where they can do destruction on their school or their neighborhoods. And so they've got their own neighborhood alliance here. And, and, and they're telling me, you know, they're, they're not being mean about it. They're just saying, you got to turn around, right? right? right. Anybody that comes, no. You just can't be here. You just can't be here. You know, you don't have to go home. Yeah, I don't know where I don't know where you want to go, but you're not coming to our neighborhood or our school, right? And while we're there, we hear gunshots, and uh, everybody just disperses, and you go, "This is real," you know. And it, I didn't think they were threatening. I thought that the shots were a couple blocks away, and I didn't even know if they were firecrackers or gunshots, but they thought matter. they were, and they said, "Get out," you yeah, know. Yeah, just go. And you're seeing this, man. And these people are so proud of their place and they form this, this, this group and they're not going to let somebody come in and disrupt their lives, you know, and their neighborhoods and their school. And, and I can remember, I'll never forget. I mean, the imagery that the, there was a, there was a, a car dealership and, uh, on Lake Street, uh, on Franklin. And, and on one side, a guy had a sawed off shotgun. On the other side, a guy had a, uh, on the other side of a guy had a rifle. And they're just standing there as if to say, you, okay. You want a piece of us? Here we are. And you saw this. You never thought you'd see this. And the, but, and the people we talked to when I'd go out on the street and, and, and people, you know, they always ask about, weren't you scared? And, and, and all those. Yeah. I, I was not scared. I don't know why. But, but there were a couple of things. Number one was because I worked at Channel 4 for a lot of years, a lot of people recognized me out there. And because of that, when you're in a stressful situation, you connect with people that you're familiar with. Even if you don't like them, you connect with them in times like that, right? And I felt like I really did. I felt this, this, this love or respect from these people, that the protesters I'm talking about, that they had my back because they were appreciative that I was out there telling their story you and that I allowed them to talk. And they were so appreciative of that that I never felt scared. I always felt like we were working with each other. And then I saw the law enforcement officials. And I watched people go up to them and incite them and say, and they wouldn't react. They, they would just stand there and hold their own. But they never, ever, ever incited what could have made a situation worse. And, and I had such great respect for them, too. And, and I watched these two forces come together. And the greatest thing that I saw was we were at Bobby and Steve's on Sunday night. After that semi had come down that afternoon, remember? Yeah. And and it looked like it was going to take out a whole lot of people, and it didn't. Which is still, if you look at the video, you can't believe that nobody got it. You can't believe it. So they're arresting everybody, and they bring everybody in. They've got this well-orchestrated plan. And they pinch everybody into the parking lot of Bobby and Steve's. And 
Now they've arrested everybody they're going to arrest, and they're waiting for the, the bus to come and take them to book them. And it, it, it's like, okay, Corral's, you know, finally been shut down for a little bit, right? Everything's quiet, having a cup of coffee, just watching this. And I'm watching the arresting officers and the people that they arrested. And I noticed, at least with one, but there were many more, that the officer and the person he arrested are talking. And they're, it's a conversation like you'd have in the park. I see smiles and I see laughter while I'm watching them talk to each other. One just arrested the other. So I went out and I asked if I could interview the, the, the gentleman that had been arrested. And I said, I got to tell you, I don't get it because I'm watching you. And, and if I didn't know, I would swear you two were friends. And he goes, well, really, we are. He said, we all want the same thing. We want to have a good family. We want to have a good life. We want to have good opportunities. There's not much difference between me and him, as he pointed to the arresting officer. We want the same thing. Maybe we, maybe we felt like we had to voice our opinion to change things in this world. But we want the same thing. And the arresting officer just kind of smiled and nodded. And that piece of video ended up being viewed like three million times on social media over the next week. But to me, it was the, it, it kind of crystallized to me that while we are exposing our differences, it also spoke to that we're not that much different. We're not that much different. We all want basically the same thing, the same opportunities, the same whatever it is in life, the same dreams. And it was right out there in front of us. And it just, it changed my life forever. I'm, I'm curious to know more about, um, you know, after you're in an environment that that's that intense and you were talking about the emotion, right? And, and like you said, this is the, the emotion that comes with people being structurally oppressed for a very, very long time. It comes with, um, witnessing the murder of a man by police. And, um, I, I think that a lot of us who, who are white and who occupy structural positions of privilege in this society learned a lot. Yes. Had a lot of deep reflection to do and have taken action in various ways since the, the uprisings for racial justice in 2020. And I'm wondering how, what that's looked like for you. Mm, um, good question. Yeah. I, tell you, I tell you how it's changed my life in a lot of ways. You know, I, I haven't had to deal with a lot of things a lot of people had to, and I didn't think about it. I just didn't. I didn't think about it. I just grew up, right? I didn't have to think about walking into a grocery store, and if I didn't buy anything, the people might be watching me. I didn't, I've never been pulled over because of the color of my skin that, that I know of. <laughs> These are things that were real that you know I had heard about, but now I saw them in real. I saw them up close. So here's how it's changed my life forever. I hope. I work in downtown Minneapolis, and it ain't pretty. There it hasn't been. COVID started it, and you know the worst unrest we had was three months after George Floyd, when the cops chased down a guy, and he shot himself. He had murdered somebody. He shot himself, and somebody said the cops just killed this guy, which was inaccurate. And they came and they they tried to tear down Nicollet Mall right in front of us because that's where our building is. Mm. That was far and away the most scary night of all, uh, being out there and they're burning down Brits across the street and they're taking trash cans and breaking windows to go in and get safes. And it was right outside our window. 
So downtown Minneapolis is also the perfect place to observe everything that's happened because it's there. It's in your face when I walk out to get something to eat, right? I used to walk by the homeless, the destitute, the whatever you want to call them, and, you know, they'd hit you up for money, et cetera, et cetera. And I would—I don't want to say that it was ever real bothersome. It was kind of burdensome sometimes. But I, And I would see groups of people gathered and uh, people that looked like um, they had nothing better to do than to hang out in the corner on it. And I used to look at them as groups of people and stereotype that way in my mind. And now I look at, after 2020, every one of those people, every one of them has a different story as to how they got to where they are. So what I consciously do is I go out and I sit with the homeless and I sit with the people who are obviously either struggling with something or unemployed or whatever. And I sit and I talk to them about everything. They, they, they love sports. All this stuff I didn't know beforehand, right? They love sports. They love to talk sports with me. And what strikes me every time that I'm out there visiting with these people is that they have as much talent as I do to do anything in this world. But somewhere in their background, in my background, it worked out for me and it didn't for them. And the re- there's a myriad of reasons. We all know that. But there's no shortage of talent, ability, potential in these people. Uh, these people that are, that, that are struggling. Some of them made bad decisions. Uh, in their lives, but but it, but it tends to exacerbate once you start going down that road as you learn. Um, but but talent, there's no shortage of talent in these people. There's no shortage. They, they have been given the gifts that I've been given. They just didn't have the same something that pointed them in the right direction. And within that, I feel a certain amount of guilt although I don't apologize for, you know, where I grew up and how I grew up and that I grew up in a stable environment. I can't change that any more than they can change the way they were born. But um, it radically has changed me. And I am, um, I just love these people. I do. I mean, I go out across the street at Orchestra Hall when it's nice out and, and they've got PV Plaza there. And I sit with these people, and I know, I mean, I've seen a drug deal go down in front of me. I, they're smoking pot. They're doing this, things they shouldn't do. They're drinking out of the same bottle, all that stuff. I get that, but that's not why I'm there. I'm there because I like to listen to them, and I like them. They remind me of um, what what this world is really all about, and the, and that for years I walked right by them. I worried because I thought my safety might be in jeopardy if I interacted with them. And it's one of the true highlights of working downtown is that I go out there and I visit with these people and I hear their stories and I see, you know, and and I just, I, I am forever amazed at how much intellectual talent there is there. And I am forever humbled by that that when I get done talking to them, 
I get to walk across the street into this television studio, right? And they don't. And I'm forever curious as to why that happened. What do you think are some of the things that, that we can do collectively as a society mm-hmm. to, to change those conditions, right? Because you're, you're obviously very bothered by them, right? Um, and, um, and you, you see the humanity in, in all of these people you interact with. And so, so what are your ideas for, for some things that we can do? Um, in different spaces, whether that's education or housing or, or government or media, um, to to change these conditions. Right, here's where I get discouraged as much as I get encouraged. My true belief is government can't change it. The media can't change it. The best way for us to take a bite out of this this great big issue, and I don't just call it a racial issue, because the people that are down and out aren't, it's not a black white thing. I mean, people are down and out, right? They, they might be black, they might be white, they might be uh, Native American, whatever it is, that's who I visit with that's on the street, right? But the, the number one thing that I believe that people have to do is be intentional about going out and interacting with people that they haven't been comfortable with and seeing how many similarities you have between these people that you think you've got these big differences with. I think it's organic. I think it's something that, I don't want to say I've given up on it, but I get asked this question so much, you know? And I know what I did in my life to change my structure, right? And I'd always been heavily involved in North Minneapolis and South Minneapolis, uh, uh, covering sports there. The Hospitality House has been a charity that I've worked with for a long time, Reverend Hunter. So I, I, I thought I knew. I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I knew. But it has to be people breaking bread together. It has to be people in informal settings. It has to be people. I say this. If you're at a summer basketball tournament and, and your son's playing on the all-white team and you're playing an all-black team, would would you at least try to strike up a conversation at the concession stand? Would you sit close enough that you can talk to the people from the other team? Will you do that? Will you leave your comfort zone for 30 seconds and find out that there's not as much difference as you think there is? I think that that's the only solution, is that we need to intentionally interact with each other. And when you do, (laughs) the barriers that get knocked down, the stereotypes that you get rid of, all those things, and the appreciation that you have for people that are different from you as well. The appreciation and respect you have for people that grew up differently from you. It, it, it's just transformative. It's amazing. But I get discouraged because I don't believe people will do that. I truly don't. And so now I take it back to me. Okay, I'm not going to worry about everybody else then. Lord, what would you put me on this earth for? Well, you shed, you, you, you put the light right in front of me, man. I can't, you know, you showed me. I can't walk away from this. So it's on me to do what I can do in my life to reach out organically, not when the cameras are on, not when I'm trying to, you know, there, there are certain things you do because they're good stories and all those things. But I'm talking about real conversations with people about their lives and about their dreams and about how they got to where they are, whatever it is. I I get discouraged 
because I believe that too many of us put band-aids on it or how many times have I heard they say, you know, we got to figure this out. Okay. What are you doing to figure it out? We, who's, who's we, first of all? We got to figure this out as if we're going to get through this, uh, th- this racial divide. If we just, if we, if we just legislate something or if we all go, you know, and, and it's almost as if as long as I say, yeah, we got to get this figured out. Well, now I'm off though. Cause I said, you know, we got to, you know, I, I threw my two cents in until you intentionally go out and intermix and, and, and make it a part of your life. I don't think it will get better. That's my opinion. We're going to go back to safety. So. I noticed during some of your interviews, um, you didn't wear a mask, and people were giving you grief about not wearing a mask. And as I was watching... COVID mask. COVID mask, yeah. yeah, So as I was watching those interviews, knowing you, and I kind of understood why you were doing it, and, and this could be just for me, and what I'm thinking, you had staff you were in a danger zone area. Quite a few people know your face, Mike. And I believe, and, and honestly, I heard possibly you said this a couple of times. Some of those moments you were doing more to, to actually protect your um, staff. Oh, for sure. I mean, because if they see your face, and quite a few people know sports. Believe me, I know when... When I sit down with you and somebody walks by a table, I see them walk by a table 30 billion times an hour. They'll never do that if I was alone. <laughs> um, so your face is very recognizable. And I believe, and I knew at that point, I was like, Mike is doing that more to protect the people around him because it was dangerous out there. And they all knew you. Speaking of the athletes, too. Yeah, you're absolutely right because uh, um, I made a calculated decision. The net effect was better that I didn't have a mask on. And, and I'm not going to worry about COVID as much as I am safety, right? And, and at that time, at that time, I mean, all that matters is that I keep these people that are with me safe. The last thing that I can do is get, you know, if I get hurt, I, I could have accepted that easier than somebody that I brought with me, being a photographer or somebody. So I intuitively I figured out early on that the greatest asset that I had in terms of communicating with the the mm-hmm. protesters in this case was that there were enough people that recognized me that that was a huge asset in our favor. Because that's one episode that was real dangerous. There man. were a few of them. When that, the one that dude that put the, the cam- off of the camera. When he came and, in. And yeah. Said, yeah, yeah. And, and if they didn't happened. notice your face. Yep. And, 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 that, and it happened. And then after a, a short period of time, you realized how to make that work for you. In other words, what I'd say is, Okay, we're going to go on live right now, and here's four guys over here that I just talked to, and I go, "Hey, we're going live. Can you keep me, you know, Protect. stay heads up?" Yeah, and they knew what I meant, right? And and so you get the, you you had that alliance going. The other thing though that was misunderstood about it when people watched it on TV, because you'd always see you know the burning building, the the protests in the background. If you really stop and think, who were these people out there? They were basically good people that were charged up about a cause. They weren't bad people. They weren't violent people. Most of the people there that were protesting were good people that were called to action. So they weren't looking for a fight. They were there to make a point. 
they weren't there to come after me. They weren't there to, they were there to make a point. So most of the people were good people that, that, that had decided that this was worth. Now, now you, you know, you can't come, if 98% of them are good and two are bad, you still could be in trouble, right? Sure. But that was the feeling that I got was I had protection from people because they knew who I was. Some I literally knew personally. And, and, and most of the people that were there were not angry at me or at, you know, they, they were more, um, more thoughtful than that. They, they were happier that we were there to tell a story than they were the other. So I didn't, I didn't feel that. I, I tell this story that the, 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 the you know, lake street's burning and people are running. A guy comes up to me and he goes, Max, Max. And he grabs me and I go, Oh, he says, who do you think the Timberwolves are going to draft? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't like it necessarily always looked. Now you had to be on guard. You know, you, you can't make mistakes, but, but I can't explain the feeling that I had was this is where I'm supposed to be at this moment in my life. And that's all I can, that's the only way I can explain a spiritual thing to me. How, how has your experience now kind of developing a deeper understanding of social injustices and your relationships with people who have experienced these things, how has that changed your reporting and, and how you ro- view your role in journalism? Uh, good question. Um, I constantly look for stories um, that are a little bit deeper. It, here, here, here is the, the, I'll go back to, Pre-George Floyd, when I, I did lots of stories in South and North Minneapolis, lots of professional athletes, African-American, college athletes. I, I always say I'd go over to Minneapolis North High School and I'd walk through the hallway to get to the gymnasium to find the star player and the coach. Now I walk through North Minneapolis High School, I see everybody at their lockers. And I realize each one of them has a story to tell. Not just the star athlete, not just the star, you know. And so I thought I was doing, you know, this, this work in the city, but I was kind of walking past a lot of what was going on in the city. So now I'm intentional about the way that I, I, I look for stories. I did a story, uh, this, a, a lady reached out to me and, and she had these, uh, uh, over in North Minneapolis, a group of, uh, of, Young African American kids and, and they were playing pickleball one day. They're introduced them to pickleball as part of an overall education thing that they did. Now in the past, that would not have been a story that made my radar, right? But now I saw this great opportunity to tell a different kind of story. And if I can hook pickleball in, because the story was about the daycare that they're providing for these kids and what they're trying to do for them in the form mm-hmm. of a summer school. Yeah. And, 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 and this is what we're, you know, because this is what we're up against and this is what we're, so I went out and did, the, and it was a terrific story. The, the, this nine-year-old girl comes up to me as cute as can be, and asks if I can come uh, and and do a recess with them the next day. She said, "Can you come to our school and be with us during recess the next day?" Well, that always, you know, when you go out and you do that story, that leads to another story, right? Uh, yesterday, I was at uh, it's called um, Kids Link, I believe. Rich Melzer runs it. Uh, he used to play basketball. And the NBA played for a bit. He's a, a Minneapolis kid, and he works at YMCA's, and he's got this place over there. And uh, it is a um, – and Carl Anthony Towns was there doing a code drive. That's why I went there, but I went there because Rich called me because he and I have this relationship. So he says, you're the only one I'm calling from the media. Come on over. We did it. Uh, and we got the interview with, with Towns, which was important from a news sports standpoint. But 
they they have um, kids coming in and out of there, um, homeless teenagers. And this would have never been opened up into my world, right? Um, and so, you know, on the radar to do another story with Rich, which we did when he was at the YMCA, is what do you mean homeless teenagers? What, what, what do you mean? They come through the door and what? What do you do? And it was a fascinating discussion. You know, he says, uh, it ain't all pretty. We, we, we take them through. They, they get, get checked for venereal diseases and illness and this and that. And you go, that's the real world, right? That's what they really do. Uh, I never would have been. I, I'd have driven by that building every day for my life and not even thought about what was in there, right? Um, time and time again, I see this stuff. Uh, when I'm out on the street still, like I said, I stop and talk to these people. When, when I have a different line of questioning now because I realize that what I thought was the story, there's about two or three layers beyond that many times that sits out there that, that I'm aware of now and that needs to be told. And these stories, this isn't, I'm not doing this as a public service. These are really good stories that the community needs to see. This isn't me doing this because I feel guilty or because, no, I'm doing it because it makes our news better. And because this is what we're supposed to do as reporters. Thank you, Mike. Wow. Well, my pleasure. That was a great way to end this session. Agreed. Well, we'd love to thank you for joining us today. Well, you guys just keep doing what you're doing. And we, uh, That's all always, we ask, okay? Always you got your you own back. great story, Dom. I know it. You told this story, yep. right? Yep. Now it's my turn. Yep. <laughs> Tag, you're it now. Yeah. Well, welcome. You're always welcome to come back. To you guys just keep doing what you're doing, because, like I said, I, I learned. I was sitting at Pancake House one day. I'm sitting next to an African American man. He's 72 years old, and we're talking, and he's asking me some of the same questions you asked today. And I said, you know, I get a little discouraged because sometimes I think like, you know, you're all fired up and then you realize you can't change the world. And he stopped me and goes, just see if you can change one. Just just see if you can take one person and make them better. He said, don't get caught up in this. We're going to change that. Just see if you can change one. It only takes one. Well, it takes one. And, but if each one of us can do that, right? Right. Mike, we got a special little song for you to take you to a happy space. Okay. And one uh one of your favorite special, special little songs. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank, Thank you, Mike, you. for joining us. Talk to you soon on the next episode of Parlay. And thank you guys and have a great day. That David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this. The fourth, the fifth. The minor 